is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome to the Asia Insight podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Jahira Aita, Senior Product Associate on the Energy and Environmental Affairs team at MBR. In this podcast series, we interview top experts to discuss key issues in the Indo-Pacific. In today's episode, Dr. Claire Richardson Barlow, an MBR non-resident fellow and lecturer in East Asia Studies at the University of Leeds, moderates a discussion on U.S.-Japan leadership in energy security with Dr. Ken Koyama from the Institute of Energy Economics Japan and Dr. Jennifer Sklaru from George Mason University. Today's conversation builds upon a roundtable that MBR hosted last month in Seattle alongside the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation's Energy Ministerial Meetings. With Japan assuming the G7 presidency and the U.S. hosting APEC meetings this year, the two countries are well-positioned to lead Indo-Pacific engagement on energy security challenges, which have risen to the top of the economic agenda in the wake of supply chain disruptions, heightened geopolitical tensions, and the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast will examine the energy security relationship between the U.S. and Japan, particularly how each country is dealing with the current energy crisis and tackling their respective energy transition goals, and how bilateral cooperation and leadership on these issues can help address both energy and economic security concerns. Before we begin, I would like to briefly introduce our two main speakers. Dr. Ken Koyama is Chief Economist and Senior Managing Director at the Institute of Energy Economics, Japan. Dr. Koyama is also a visiting professor at the Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Tokyo and an adjunct professor at the Institute of Innovative Research at the Tokyo Institute of Technology. Dr. Jennifer Sklaru is an assistant professor for the Environmental Science and Policy Department at George Mason University and brings 30 years of energy and environmental policymaking and analysis to her research and teaching. Her most recent book is Building Resilient Energy Systems, Lessons from Japan, published by Routledge. With that, I will now turn it over to Dr. Richardson Barlow to moderate the discussion. Thank you so much. Welcome to today's podcast on weathering the storm, U.S.-Japan leadership in Indo-Pacific energy security. We are going to be analyzing the dynamic relationship between the United States and Japan, evaluating responses to the current energy crisis and strategies for addressing a unique energy transition and challenges that both countries face with an eye towards collaborative solutions for both energy and economic security. I'm going to start off with Dr. Koyama for our first discussion question. Dr. Koyama, geopolitics play a large role in energy and economic security. How will current geopolitical tensions between the US and China reshape the future roles of fossil fuels and renewables within Asia's energy mix? Thank you very much, Clara, for your great question. And I'm happy to share my views on this very important subject. Of course, that after the Ukraine crisis happened last year, that the energy security issues became the number one top priority in the world, but uh, including the United States and Japan. And nowadays, that we have to deal with energy security together with the climate change issues, and also as a very important issue of energy price affordability and sustainability. And also, I have to mention that 
Uh, energy security concept itself is becoming very, very complicated. Uh, of course, there are lots of important common factors, such as that, uh, how to avoid uh, over-dependence on that, uh, some very important strategic commodity on specific sources. But I think that the situation is changing very rapidly. In terms of the points that the US-China tensions or the widening uh, global divide, I think that from now on, energy security concept need to cover not only that the energy issue itself, of course, fossil fuel, electricity security of supply, renewable issues is important, but also we need to pay attention to such strategic commodity as critical minerals security of supply. I think that this is one of the key elements of US-Japan strategic consideration in terms of energy security in the future. Why? Because that we are all pursuing that uh, uh, energy transition uh, toward uh, decarbonization and enhancing energy security, in which critical mineral demand is expected to increase dramatically. And under the circumstance, we are expecting or we have a concern over the uh, dependence on some specific source, including China, of the uh, critical mineral supplies. So under the circumstance, we have to pay attention what will be the future challenge for the energy security, not only paying attention to the oil supply security, gas supply security, electricity security, security of supply, but also the critical mineral security of supply. And also we need to pay attention to the energy price affordability. Under the circumstance, we have to uh, promote energy transition in a cost minimum approach. And with this, I'd like to draw your attention that the G7 Hiroshima summit, the agreement is made about the various pathway uh, with a good discussion with uh, Japan, United States and the EU. And finally, G7 communicate clearly recognize the importance of various pathway to achieve the common goal of climate change protection and enhanced energy security. So under the circumstance, I think that the United States and Japan need to further enhance the cooperation to deal with our common challenge and also to cons uh, with due consideration on the impact of deepening the, the geopolitical tension as well as the importance of global South countries. Thank you so much, Dr. Koyama. I think you really hit the nail on the head there regarding the complications of energy security issues and how intertwined they are that the United States and Japan face both individually and then also collaboratively. Dr. Scleroux, I'm going to move to you. Um, last month, the Japanese government finally moved forward with its controversial decision to release the treated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the ocean, seen as nuclear will play a bigger role within Japan's energy mix amidst the ongoing energy crisis and its race towards a net zero economy. Do you see this development as an indicator that nuclear power generation is becoming considerably more palpable to the Japanese government and also the public? Thank you. That is also a great question. And I think Dr. Koyama and I will overlap quite a bit in terms of our areas of interest and uh, hopefully provide 
different perspectives and some overlapping perspectives. Uh, so to understand the recent shifts in nuclear support and policies in Japan, we need to understand and examine the energy system resilience priorities of the Japanese government, the public, the electric utilities, and the local communities. Government decision makers have been prioritizing both engineering and ecological resilience, which means revitalization of the existing energy infrastructure and adaptation of it to respond to the Fukushima disaster, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and future shocks. And concurrently, the government has prioritized economic resilience, focusing on pricing of energy resources and electricity, as well as the costs of investments in existing energy infrastructure. And finally, the government is focused on social resilience, including citizens' access to electricity. Due to the war in Ukraine, the public's energy resilience priorities currently overlap with the government's, especially in regard to electricity prices and electricity access. So the social resilience aspects that involve health and safety also remain a priority for the public, and that highlights the importance of the Nuclear Regulation Authority, or NRA, in promoting health and safety, which is a necessity for rebuilding public trust in nuclear power and the government's ability to oversee it. Many in the Japanese government have remained supportive of nuclear power, with a focus on rebuilding public acceptance and addressing challenges arising from the Fukushima disaster, including the release of the treated wastewater. And the war in Ukraine and extreme weather effects on natural gas prices, electricity prices, and electricity supply have galvanized recent public support for a return of nuclear power. Some of you, I'm sure, will have seen the 2022 and 2023 public opinion polls in Japan that demonstrate rising public support for reactor restarts, as well as renewed support for reactor license extensions and new nuclear reactor construction. And this return of public support has enabled policies to revitalize nuclear power as part of Japan's domestic decarbonization strategy. So some of these policies include the Green Transformation GX strategy, the GX Decarbonization Electricity Act, which is a bundle of amendments to various pieces of existing energy legislation, advancement of nuclear reactor restarts, new construction of advanced reactors to replace decommissioned reactors, and revised parameters for reactor license extensions beyond 60 years by excluding these outage periods when the reactors are turned off, and license renewals in 10-year increments after 30 years of reactor operation. In addition, the government continues its ongoing policy support for long-term plans to develop domestic reprocessing and use of the resulting mixed oxide or MOX fuel in reactors. Now, these policies can enable nuclear power to help to address the public's energy justice concerns related to electricity pricing and power outages, but environmental justice and some economic resilience concerns also need to be addressed. So, for example, Japan's fisheries community remains concerned about the ocean release of treated water from the Fukushima reactors, and their focus on economic resilience of their industry intersects with public perceptions regarding health and safety aspects of social resilience. And addressing these concerns involves transparent communication of the scientific evidence from studies by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, and the Japanese government. And the government has made efforts to engage in this type of transparency. And the IAEA is providing live data on the agency's website regarding the release of the treated water from the Fukushima reactors. The data provided includes water flow rates and radiation monitoring data and the concentration of tritium in the water after dilution. So raising awareness of this available information and ensuring access to Japanese translations of it, I think will help to inform public perceptions in Japan. 
Now, the other type of transparency, which is openness of the decision-making process, is more challenging to undertake for governments around the world. And we can all learn from one another's best practices on involving concerned communities and industry groups in the decision-making process from local to national levels. The Japanese government and the IAEA did employ a public comment period for technical and scientific opinions of the safety assessment for the water release. And this is a valuable best practice. It seems that the same opportunity for input is needed for public opinion on the water release itself, as well as further explanation of how the comments are considered and incorporated into decisions. So meaningful public comment processes and other mechanisms for input can help to educate and empower these communities and groups, and they can mitigate the public's very low to zero <laughs> risk tolerance and its effects on responses to shocks and energy system resilience. Including stakeholders in these decision-making discussions also enables policymakers to understand the concerns and find collaborative ways to address them early in the decision-making process. And all of these measures will contribute to sustaining public support for nuclear power in the long term in Japan. Thank you so much. Um, your answer also highlights the interconnected challenges Japan must address with regards to energy security and a diversified energy mix as well as the way in which global issues like war in Ukraine and international standards can have knock-on domestic effects elsewhere. I also personally love to hear the nod to energy justice and transparency in energy security as well. Thank you, that was really great. I'm next gonna open uh, with a question for both of you. Japan's current nuclear energy makeup is around 8% of its overall energy mix. But the Japanese government aims to have nuclear power make up 20 to 22 percent of the country's energy share by 2030. What are the policy hurdles that Japan must overcome to achieve this goal? Dr. Koyama, let's start with you. Okay, uh, I'm very happy to uh, take this question as well. Uh, first of all, that uh, before the, the Fukushima nuclear accident, uh, nuclear power accounted for about 30% of Japan's power generation mix, which means that the nuclear power is a very, very important base load power supply to Japan. But the Fukushima accident made things completely different. At one time, all the nuclear fleet in Japan stopped the operation, and there was a zero contribution of nuclear power generation in Japanese energy mix. And to make up for this significant loss, uh, Japan needed to increase substantially the share of fossil fuel power generation, mainly in the form of gas-fired or LNG-fired power generation. And due to the effort made by the government and industry and all the citizens uh, in Japan from the viewpoint of the energy conservation, we avoided the very serious blackout situation in Japan. But the significant increase in fossil fuel power generation means that our energy security, that the climate change goal significantly negatively affected. We became more and more import dependent and our energy cost increased substantially and our CO2 emission increased very, very rapidly. But in the past, 10 or more than 10 years, we continue to work very hard to for the nuclear restart. And I have to say, it was a very, very, uh, it takes a very long time to see that uh, restart. 
And Jennifer pointed out that uh, sentiment in Japanese citizens. And during the past years, that um, many public poll suggest that the majority of people in Japan not supporting that the nuclear power restart, or otherwise there was a very strong anti-sentiment uh, with regard to the restart. And uh, this is purely because of the very significant impact of the accident itself. But things also changed again. Uh, Jennifer also main, uh, mentioned about that the impact of Ukraine crisis. It is true. I 100% agree with her. And uh, Japan as a hundred, almost uh, very much import dependent nation, that the international energy market price runner and uh, instability became the source of concern for energy security in Japan. But also it's important to note that uh, our domestic power supply demand situation became another source of concern. Last year, we experienced uh, almost close uh, blackout situation in Japan, and that lead to the change in the people's mindset or sentiment. As Jennifer pointed out, now majority people are supporting nuclear power restart, as well as the best optimal utilization of existing nuclear power. Under the circumstance, the current Japanese government, headed by Prime Minister Kishida, clearly emphasized the promotion of uh, the best use of existing nuclear power, which is very important source for our energy security and climate change protection and energy price affordability. That's why we are making maximum effort to that. But there's a long way to go. Uh, we saw in the, uh, at this moment about 10 nuclear power already restarted, but all the restarted nuclear power plant is a PWR power, uh, pressurized water reactors. And the future of nuclear power restart in Japan is very important with regard to the restart possibility of BWR. Uh, I think that uh, many people are pushing a very strong work on that the promotion of or restart of the nuclear power in Japan as, uh, as a whole. And also we make a best utilization of uh, existing uh, nuclear power with a lifetime extension. But if we consider that the need to address the climate change protection and energy security enhancement beyond 2050, we may need to make further effort for the new build or replacement of the existing nuclear reactors, including a new technology such as SMR. But I think that uh, it will again take time. Although that uh, people's sentiment is changing, I think that this is a very, very important time that the government and the industry work very hard to achieve that our uh, Japanese uh, national uh, energy goal, with including the, the 2030 energy mix and 2050 carbon neutrality uh, achievement. Thank you, Dr. Koyama. Dr. Skleru, same question for you. What are the policy hurdles that Japan must overcome to achieve its energy share goals? So this is another great and very difficult question. And once again, I will overlap somewhat with Ken in terms of my response to, uh, focus. 
uh, because I'd like to focus on two broad categories of hurdles or challenges. And the first is public perceptions, which I already uh, discussed a bit and where I do overlap with some of Ken's views. And these public perceptions are also linked to the food, energy, water nexus and challenges there. So broader challenges, uh, which I've also mentioned a bit. Uh, and the second category that I'd like to focus on is technical challenges, which are intertwined with regulatory pacing. I will caveat that by saying I am not an engineer, but I am aware because I have friends and colleagues who are engineers and I, because I've been looking at the technical challenges for many years, uh, I'm aware of at least a, a cursory view of them. Uh, so I, pardon me for, for not uh, going into great detail, but I will mention a few of them. Uh, so regarding public perceptions, the Japanese government and the electric utility will need to sustain the rise in public support for nuclear power. And this support, as I mentioned, emerged from challenges to energy security, social resilience, and economic resilience arising from the war in Ukraine and climate change-induced extreme weather events. So the question is, will public support endure past the end of the war in Ukraine, which hopefully will be soon, and will it endure long enough for many more nuclear reactor restarts, new construction and completion of the Rokasho nuclear fuel preprocessing plant and the MOX fuel fabrication plant. Now, concurrent with the rise in public support for a return and expansion of nuclear power, food, energy, water nexus challenges are reflected in the domestic opposition from the fisheries industry to the release of the treated wastewater from the Fukushima reactors, as also already mentioned. So addressing these types of cross-cutting challenges that link energy with water and food requires holistic policy solutions that span these sectors. And this issue leads us to the second category I'd like to discuss, the intersection of technical and regulatory challenges. And uh, we've heard about the pace of the restarts uh, from Ken. The pace of the NRA approvals of Rokasho and nuclear plant restarts reflects the NRA's necessary attention on the engineering and social resilience priorities of safety and long-term nuclear infrastructure viability. Enforcement of stringent safety reviews and regulations is crucial to the success of the new policies on license extensions and new reactor construction. And these regulations also play a key role in Japan's energy system resilience. At the same time, this regulatory enforcement has led to around 30 delays in completion of the Rokasho reprocessing plant, with expected completion now in 2024, along with completion of the MOX fuel fabrication plant. And the extension of the timeline has implications for the ongoing challenge of spent nuclear fuel disposal and storage, especially in a space-constrained nation like Japan. So these long timelines also bring financial challenges for the reactor operators who have budgeted their reactor investments and returns in their planning for reactor lifetimes. These financial considerations are accompanied by the costs of compliance with the new and necessary safety regulations. So reactor operators are weighing the costs of continued operation against the revenue these plants will generate once restarted. So the government's new policy on license extensions aims to mitigate some of this financial risk. Uh, it's, you know, it's a good policy for that. But will the costs of compliance with the regulations be too high? And could they lead to further plant decommissioning? And again, we have the new policy on uh, new reactor construction that could replace some of these reactors if they are decommissioned. So further policies may be needed to address these economic resilience concerns while preserving the regulations contributions to social and engineering resilience. And the policies and partnerships aimed at new reactor development, both large and small, can catalyze creation of new nuclear technologies, including small modular reactors, SMRs, 
as well as high temperature gas cooled reactors, HTGCRs. But deploying these new reactors will require regulations tailored to these designs. So all of these challenges regarding public perceptions, food, energy, water interconnections, technical hurdles, and regulatory timing and compliance costs face many nations, not just Japan. And they reflect the complexities of energy transitions to achieve holistic energy system resilience that includes energy security, decarbonization, and economic stability. So integrative solutions involving reframing regulatory compliance and economic resilience to reflect these linkages with nuclear infrastructure durability and with engineering and ecological resilience are needed. And in terms of policy and regulation, these solutions also require coordination across interconnected sectors. So, of course, energy, but also water and food. So this is challenging also, but also needed. And finally, adding transparency measures to these solutions can sustain public support. So all of these solutions are needed for holistic energy system resilience. Thank you so much. You both have highlighted the logistical, regulatory, policy, and also public perception challenges very clearly. And obviously, a lot of collaboration across these issues is needed. Let's end with one final question for both of you. How do you see the United States and Japan collaborating on key technologies like nuclear and hydrogen at both the government and local levels? Dr. Sklaru, let's begin with you this time. Okay, uh, so yet another great question, and I like ending with collaboration and partnerships. That's always a good way to end. Uh, so for decades, U.S.-Japan collaboration, both between governments and across the two nations' private sectors, has supported bilateral energy technology research and development, safety, and public awareness. And these many broad partnerships on energy security and clean energy frame more specific joint efforts on nuclear power, hydrogen, critical minerals, as Ken mentioned earlier, and other technologies that are crucial to energy system resilience in both nations and beyond. <laughs> this cooperation has provided support for energy security in other nations as well. So, for example, we have partnerships to develop next generation nuclear reactors for deployment not only in Japan and the United States, but also in other Indo-Pacific and African nations. And looking forward, there are some specific areas that these many strong partnerships can continue to target, I think, or begin partnering to innovate. So in terms of research and development, the two governments can prioritize solutions to nuclear waste disposal, in addition to continuing collaboration on advanced nuclear technologies, including the small modular reactors or SMRs, the U.S. and Japanese governments also should continue to advance research on fusion, especially given the recent breakthroughs. And collaboration on hydrogen development can focus on clean supply chain security through green and purple or pink hydrogen production produced from renewable energy and nuclear power, as well as use in green applications. And the two governments also can work together on renewable energy development, including advancing offshore wind, I think Ken may have some comments there, and geothermal technologies. Uh, while shifting toward low and zero carbon fuels, it's also important, as Ken mentioned earlier, to collaborate on addressing supply chain uncertainties for fuels and critical minerals and materials. Now, regarding bilateral cooperation on energy technology and infrastructure safety and resilience at the national level, Continued collaboration between the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, and Japan's Nuclear Regulation Authority, the NRA, will enable sharing of best practices for safety and resilience, as they've already been doing. 
And local level US-Japan partnerships also have become increasingly important to energy supply chain security and holistic energy system resilience. And these local exchanges and collaboration on resilience building have included microgrids, battery storage, geothermal, hydrogen, and other pioneering technologies. So expanding this type of local level bilateral cooperation will help us to achieve national level decarbonization and energy security goals in an integrated way, while bolstering local energy system resilience for communities across both nations. And this safety and resilience focus is linked to bilateral collaboration to enhance public awareness and understanding of energy technology benefits and risks, as well as public engagement in energy system resilience at national and local levels. So this cooperation can include exchanges of best practices on transparent information sharing by U.S. and Japanese policymakers at all levels. And these practices also can include exchanging experiences and ideas on ways to promote stakeholder engagement in nuclear restarts and new nuclear and hydrogen infrastructure siting processes, because we have some national level discussions going on, but there are always local permitting and siting discussions as well. And these local to national U.S.-Japan partnerships focused on research and development, safety, public awareness and risk, and also financing can enable clean energy innovation toward energy system resilience in both countries and in the broader Indo-Pacific region. Thank you so much. Dr. Koyama, same question for you. How do you see United States and Japan collaborating on key technologies like nuclear and hydrogen at both the government and local level? Once again, thank you very much for this uh, great and wonderful question. And in terms of the answering this uh, from the technological and very detailed uh, manner, I think that uh, Jennifer made a great answer to you. So I would like to make a little bit different angles. Firstly, that the US-Japan operation on key energy technology and other area should be the most important element for the global stability and global sustainability. I think that the United States and Japan need to work together uh, bilaterally, of course, uh, for the, our two countries' energy security and climate change policy. But also that uh, US-Japan collaboration and cooperation need to play a very important role in the context of the very difficult and very sensitive geopolitical env environment nowadays. Uh, we need to work together in the context of G7, of course, but also we need to work together towards global South country and towards the Middle East and other major suppliers uh, with our allies in our areas. And uh, I 100% agree with Jennifer uh, on that uh, nuclear uh, cooperation between two countries. But from now, I'd like to briefly touch upon the importance of the cooperation in particular for hydrogen. I uh, think that the hydrogen need to play a key role to achieve carbon neutrality, simply because that uh, without CO2-free hydrogen, we cannot mapping out the future of carbon neutrality to deal with, in particular, hard to abate sectors. And how to develop the supply chain of clean hydrogen in terms of internationally domestically and locally is a key challenge. And I do believe 
that the US and Japan Technology Corporation on this respect will be very important. Uh, two years ago, IEJ made a very important study on the uh, hydrogen international supply chain. And in that study that, that we recognized the United States together with some of the Middle East countries will become the most important clean hydrogen supplier in the world. And Japan as a clean hydrogen consumer potentially in the future, we need to work hard to make international supply chain possible. Of course, technological development, significant cost reduction, infrastructure development, all these very, very important challenges to be overcome in the future. But to overcome the difficulties, again, that our two nations need to work together. And this cooperation, collaboration will further contribute to the decarbonization or energy transition, not only our two nations, but also in the world. Our two countries need to work together for developing Asian countries, global South countries, energy transition in a cost minimum and effective way. And that will be very important for, uh, in view of the difficulty in the geopolitical tension in the world. So I think there are many, many ways or many, many areas that the United States and Japan can work together, and we have to do that. That's my point. And I am a great believer that our two nations need to work hard bilaterally and more uh, internationally. Dr. Koyama, that's a very optimistic and uplifting point to end on. So thank you. Thank you to Dr. Ken Koyama and Dr. Jennifer Sklaru, as well as our audience, for joining this insightful discussion on the critical nexus of global energy security and global stability within the rapidly evolving global energy landscape. Today's exploration has shed light on many things, including the pressing geopolitical dynamics shaping the role of fossil fuels and renewables in Asia's energy mix. And additionally, we've delved into Japan's evolving stance on nuclear power, foreseeing its increasing importance in the country's energy portfolio as they strive for a net zero economy and how this might reshape their future energy strategies. Looking ahead, our discussion also highlights the challenges and policy hurdles that Japan must overcome to significantly enhance the share of renewable power in its energy mix by 2030, emphasizing the need for a more comprehensive approach that encompasses economics, geopolitics, technology, public perceptions, logistics, and more. Lastly, we've explored the potential for collaborative efforts between the United States and Japan in advancing key technologies like nuclear and hydrogen, underscoring the importance of both government and local level cooperation to drive sustainable solutions and address shared energy security goals in the Indo-Pacific. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations on the critical energy issues of our time. Thank you both again. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.